This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast with me, Vas Christodoulou. My guest this week is Toby Ord, an Oxford philosopher whose new book, The Precipice, explores humanity's chances of surviving the 21st century. It comes out in paperback this week and I could not recommend it more highly. If you've ever wondered whether natural disasters or AI are more likely to wipe out humankind... If you want to know more about our prospects of surviving a nuclear war, or whether pandemics or climate change are a bigger threat to our future, this episode is for you. I hope you enjoy it. Hi Toby, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. It's great to be here. When we think about academic philosophy, it's easy to stereotype it as a discipline that's dedicated to intellectual minutiae, you know, how many hairs on a bald man's head before we can say he's bald, that kind of thing. But in your new book, The Precipice, you encompass what may become of humanity in billions of years. In some ways, it feels like reading a really thrilling and epic sci-fi novel more than reading a conventional philosophy book. So can you tell us a bit about your background and how you came to work, not on traditional philosophical issues, but this vast canvas of the future? Sure. So I'm Australian. I was born in 1979 and uh, I I grew up being interested in lots of different things in science. And uh, in fact, I I wanted to get into computer science and uh, develop AI. Uh, that was that was my aim in the the eighties and nineties. Uh, I ended up uh, studying computer science and and then also maths and then also switching into philosophy. I did a couple of philosophy courses, got interested, and then somehow ended up actually making this transition and finding myself in graduate school in philosophy, uh, doing ethics rather than uh, all of these other science things I'd been doing. Um, and that's because, uh, yeah, I was I was really interested in kind of the big questions of, uh, you know, what should we be doing with the world? Um, Where are we going? Um, What are the most important issues facing humanity and what can we do about them? Uh, And these questions aren't always addressed all that much in ethics as it happens, Uh, despite that being the the subject that is in some sense most relevant, right? It's, you know, the study of what we ought to do and also about, you know, importance itself. You know, what makes something important? Why is it important to, to help someone in need and so forth? And the the first of these really big issues uh, that I was tackling uh, was global poverty and also global health, ways in which we could 
do so much more to help others uh, in poorer countries um, than we can do here when it comes to giving some money to help a needy cause. So I was really impressed by you know, how much good vaccination has done in the past. Take something like smallpox. This was something that was killing uh, more people in the 20th century actually died from smallpox uh, than died from all wars put together. Uh, and yet it's something that we managed to completely eradicate. Um, so that an entire issue that had a death toll equivalent to, to that of war has been you know, removed forever. So I was, I was really inspired by things like that. You know, how can we, we you know, what are these kind of great things we could do? How can we understand these big things we can do both in our own personal lives? In fact, I ended up helping to found an area called effective altruism, uh, which was really about trying to think about in your own life, either through your giving or through your career, how can you do as much good for others as possible? And uh, set up an organization called Giving What We Can, where we all make a pledge uh, to give at least 10% of our income for the rest of our lives to, to help shape the world for the better. Uh, so really interested in a lot of these things with a focus on global poverty and global health. But I also met someone at Oxford uh, called Nick Bostrom, who got there at about the same time as me, another philosopher who uh, was also interested in big questions uh, that, that other people weren't asking. Uh, in some ways, Nick was interested in even bigger questions um, about uh, the, you know, the entire future of humanity and uh, where we might be going and um, were there risks uh, to it all. And uh, he got me into this and, uh, and started to wonder why other people in philosophy weren't asking these kinds of questions. Uh, in part of the answer is that it's very useful to have a science background as well in order to be able to understand these kinds of uh, threats to us. And uh, in fact, I found while I was writing uh, my book, The Precipice, that I ultimately needed to make use of all my background across different disciplines, you know, science and history and economics and international relations and drew upon many experts across all of these things to try to put together the, the big picture. So The Precipice, uh, I think, as you alluded to, is a book about how we can protect the interests of future humans from what you call existential risks, the term you got from Nick. What is an existential risk and why is this present moment so particularly full of them? Yeah, the, the, the book is about, ultimately, I think it's about humanity writ large. Um, it's about the, the 10,000 generations that came before us uh, and the tens of thousands or, or more generations who could follow and trying to think seriously about humanity over deep time. Uh, in doing so, I think that there's a fairly optimistic story that our future could be much greater than the present, both in terms of this, this sheer expanse of time, but also in terms of the quality of, of each generation in the future. But all of that future is, a, is at stake um, and is at risk, uh, because while we've always been subject to natural risks, which could potentially cause humanity's extinction and end our story, only recently, with the development of nuclear weapons, have we entered a, an era where we pose anthropogenic risks, where our power uh, has grown so great that we can threaten our own continued existence. Uh, and these anthropogenic risks are substantially larger than the natural risks that have come before us, uh, sufficiently so that, that my best guess as to the chance that this is our last century is that there's about a one in six chance of that, uh, like, a, like a die roll. And ultimately, one couldn't last very many centuries with a risk like that. 
So I call the, this this time period the precipice, and I think that you know humanity is inching its way along a, a, a path on a cliffside, uh, and that this is the most dangerous part of our journey so far. And I think it will be the most dangerous part of our journey to come. That if we can get through this period, and we can gain the wisdom that we need and the institutions that we need in order to uh, reduce this risk and to make a commitment to keep it low, uh, then I think we have a, a really long and glorious future ahead of us. But that this may be one of or the most important times in humanity's history. Uh, and that's the idea of the book. So existential risk is this threat. Um, what happens if we fall? And so this includes human extinction because there would be fundamentally no way back if we went extinct. And it also includes anything else that would be the final end of humanity's uh, potential. So that includes things like a collapse of civilization so deep that uh, we could never recover, or perhaps a totalitarian world state that we could never overthrow. Um, and all of these things have something in common, which is that it's not just the present that's at stake, but the entire future, uh, because they would be irreversible. And uh, that's the key, that humanity ultimately has got through 10,000 generations without ever once falling victim to such a thing, because the only threats were the natural ones, which we now know to be fairly low. Uh, but going forward, you know, we, we have to get through this century without falling victim to one of these things and the century after and the century after. And that's not going to happen unless we really uh, devote a lot of attention to it. So let me play the devil's advocate. Why should we care so much about these theoretical future humans and put their interests over ours? Well, I mean, I, I think ultimately we we clearly can't say that we don't care about them just because they don't currently exist. Um, so we, for example, uh, build neonatal units for children who won't yet exist at the time when the the ward of the hospital is being built. And, and no one, you know, serious says, oh, well, in that case, we don't need to build these units because the children don't exist. So it can't be something quite like that. Um, similarly, you know, when we have a lot of environmentalist concern and other concern about our cities, you know, we, we make decisions uh, as a nation, uh, you know, to put the future in good stead in 50 years time. And, you know, if someone said that there's a there's a form of radiation where we can, you know, we can store our waste in a particular way, but it will um, it will kill a lot of people in a hundred years' time. No one says, "Well, that doesn't matter because those people don't exist." Um, so I think generally we do indeed understand that even if someone doesn't yet exist, that they will, uh, and that a harm to them matters just as much. It does get a bit more confusing when you consider that perhaps there will be no one at all, uh, no one to judge us, you know, for our folly, for example. But ultimately. I think that uh, humans, you know, count equally and they count equally whenever they are in time as well. Uh, and that that's my main basis for it. But even if you even if you rejected that, and some people in philosophy do, and they have various complicated <laughs> stories about it, it's not just the case based on the future, which suggests that this could be a critically important moment um, when dealing with these risks. Because if we fell victim to an existential risk, you know, it would be the, the final destruction uh, of all people and of everything that we've ever worked for, you know, the final ruin of, of every uh, cathedral that we've ever built and uh, every language and every culture that we have. And we would be the first of 10,000 generations to drop the baton and fail to continue this intergenerational partnership, which is kind of the grandest project that there's ever been, uh, this continued development that's taken us from, uh, you know, stone tools all the way to spacecraft. And so uh, I think that whether you think of it in terms, as I often do, uh, of the future that's at stake, or whether you think of it in terms of responsibilities 
to continue the projects and heritage of the 10,000 generations that came before us. Either way, I think, understandably, threats of the destruction of uh, the entirety of humanity are important, as important as you would think they were, yeah. In The Precipice, you adopt this perspective of thinking of humanity as a whole, as a single entity, which is, is very unusual. How did you come to this perspective? Yeah, I, it actually was a perspective I developed while writing the book. I'd been thinking about existential risk and about the future of humanity for you know a decade before I started writing it. But when I, when I began, I, I started looking back at the past of humanity uh, more than I had before. Um, I wanted to, to tell the story and put it in context, uh, but I hadn't realized at the time how, how much I would come to see this more as the, the grand story of humanity rather than the story of everything from now onwards, which is also uh, you know, a vast story. And uh, I guess you know, at some points I, was, uh, you know, I had a young child and was, was explaining the world to her. And, you know, I just was thinking about everything around me. You know, if I, if I look around me in my, in my office at the moment, everything I can see, except I guess my own hands, or perhaps the clouds in the sky, is fashioned by human ingenuity. And it's not just that, that someone did the work on this, but that people had to work out so many steps before they could even get to this point. You know, I, I see a, a sword off beam, you know, that is over 100 years old as part of my house. And that seems like an ancient history to us. But, you know, before we could develop metal saws, you know, how, you know, how much was built upon, you know, up before that, uh, before we could forge the metal and, you know, shape these things and work out so much about how we, sh- we everything we live in. And it goes further and further back, you know, you, you just look at a brick wall and, you know, understanding like, you know, the lime needed for the mortar and how to get the clay baked in the kiln and to use rectangles in order to kind of build a structure. And ultimately, this is what the 10,000 generations were doing. Um, you know, it's, it, and I felt this aspect that if, if I've seen, you know, a little bit further than others, it's because I've uh, not so much stood on the shoulders of giants, but stood on the shoulders of the hundred billion people who came before me and shaped this world. Um, and so this gave me a kind of almost a vertigo of looking back. And uh, for, for most of human history, no one realized how long human history was. You know, people in, say, 1500 had no idea that we needed 100 billion humans to have lived in order to have created the, the clothing and structures that they saw around them. In theory, they could have been able to work it out by thinking about how long it takes someone to kind of come up with something like this. Uh, but we assumed it was all much briefer. And this kind of really made me think in terms of that while we often think about morality on this uh, personal perspective, um, you know, what should I do? Or, and, and we've more recently taken it all the way up to this global perspective of, you know, what if everyone did that across the whole world um, when thinking about things like climate change? That actually, when you're thinking about things like existential risks and this fact that you have to be able to get through thousands of generations without ever once falling victim to this thing, you start to think not just, you know, what if everyone did it at, at a time, but what if everyone was as careless as us over all of these generations and you realize that we would definitely fail? Um, and that therefore, you know, we're, we're violating a kind of intergenerational norm that there needs to be if, we're, if humanity is to, uh, to fulfill its potential. Let's talk about some of these existential risks. Of course, they're not unique to the 21st century. In the 20th century, we had the threat of nuclear war. Can you tell us about um, how we came to the precipice in the 20th century? Yeah, um, there'd been various developments in atomic theory, which were perfectly peaceable in the, the first part of the 20th century. 
Uh, but when people discovered uh, fission, the way that you could split an atom and, uh, and lead to a large release of energy, they very quickly realized that there would be this possibility of a chain reaction and that you could build a weapon. Uh, almost immediately, actually, scientists in Germany uh, approached the war office and started an atomic program before it had even got going in the United States. And we soon found um, you know, a race where all of the great powers involved in World War II had their own atomic weapons programs and were kind of hurtling towards the development of these weapons. The US got there and um, ultimately did a first test launch, the, the Trinity test, only a short period of time before the, these bombs were then used in anger uh, in, uh, in Japan. But this weapon unleashed these forces where a, a single plane um, could drop a bomb that would do as much damage as an entire thousand bomber raid. And we started to realize what would the future of war look like? Um, as it happened, this ended the Second World War, but people immediately started planning uh, for further wars. And the Cold War actually, you know, began within weeks of the uh, the end of the Second World War, with uh, with uh, the U.S. drawing up maps of which parts of Russia they could reach, just you know, just days after the end of World War II. And uh, and people realized that if all of these cities could be destroyed, maybe maybe humanity itself was at risk. Um, eventually, they realized the actual reason that that could happen. There were a whole lot of early rough thoughts about it. Um, you know, maybe everyone could be destroyed in the blasts. Uh, but it turns out that's not true. There are far too many nuclear weapons. But the real threats are if things that could have global effect, um, in particular, the idea of nuclear winter, that the, the soot from the burning cities could loft high enough in the very hot fires uh, to reach all the way into the stratosphere. This occasionally happens in large wildfires. In, if so, then it could circle the globe and it would be too high to be rained out by clouds. And so it could darken and cool the world for a number of years, uh, leading to uh, this phenomenon of nuclear winter, which is very similar to uh, the asteroid winter uh, that killed the dinosaurs. And the concern would be that, uh, that we would starve um, due to early frosts, meaning that, that the crops wouldn't grow. And uh, as it happens, I, I looked into this in some detail, it's, there's often a lot of loose talk that we have enough nuclear weapons to destroy the world many times over. Uh, fortunately, uh, that is not really true. But uh, not many people would be very relieved to hear that it, the, the, the current guesses are merely that billions of people would die, uh, but that there's very little chance of it destroying humanity. So, you know, there's a silver lining there. And, and I try to keep my eye on the ball on this question that I'm, I'm dealing with in the book on are these threats to the whole future of humanity or are they primarily threats of a kind of new dark age that would at least be temporary? And nuclear war is more in that category of a new dark age. Uh, but it does, you know, it's, it's still hard to rule out that it could have these types of risks on the whole of humanity. You know, we couldn't, if we, if we were appeared before St. Peter, um, you know, at the pearly gates and, you know, we, we couldn't say, well, how would we know that, uh, that unleashing thousands of nuclear weapons and causing unprecedented immediate changes to the climate could be our end? You know, it, obviously we could have predicted that we really don't have much of an idea what would happen and that we couldn't be that surprised if it was our end. Uh, but there's not any direct mechanisms that are known of that really could explain exactly how it could cause our end, which is the, uh, the, the upside on that. Climate change, of course, is the existential risk that I'm sure all of our listeners would be aware of. Can you share your insights into that? Yes. So I find that some people seem to think that climate change 
will definitely destroy humanity. Uh, and you sometimes hear this, or that if we don't make radical changes within a year or two, um, that scientists have said that it will destroy humanity. Fortunately, that is not true. The papers uh, that are appealed to normally say something like, unless we change tack very quickly, we'll be committed to more than five degrees of warming by the year 2100 or something like that. And would five degrees of warming by the year 2100 be enough to destroy humanity? Probably not. Um, there's actually very few papers uh, that really discuss whether climate change could lead to the end of humanity or a permanent collapse of civilization. Really only, only a handful. And in the best of my investigation, which, which I detail in the book, it appears that the mechanisms of a runaway climate change, uh, like what happened on Venus, uh, where the, the climate went hundreds of degrees hotter, something like that would clearly be enough to do us in. Uh, but it seems extraordinarily unlikely. Most scientists think that it's impossible to happen on the Earth due to carbon dioxide alone. If the sun got brighter, it could happen, but it wouldn't happen from carbon dioxide. But we're not totally sure about that, and I think you know more research would be useful. The type of people who say that can't happen tend to say it can't happen because there's a paper in Nature which says it can't happen. But you know, papers in Nature have been wrong before, and uh, we do well to uh, to look into it more. But the more mainstream scenarios of uh, you know one, two, three, four, six degrees warming, it is very difficult to see how these could be the end of humanity. Um, again, uh, they could well be a dark age. Um, you know, th this could be a very serious uh, cost. And um, really, you know, I don't want to underplay it at all, but could it be one of these existential risks that has this, this special value that you have to be so cautious about them because, uh, because you can never once afford to have an existential catastrophe happen? The answer is probably not. Um, we don't really know of any mechanisms uh, that could cause that. The direct heat might make certain areas uninhabitable. Um, certain areas that were previously very hot and humid in the summers um, could become completely uninhabitable. But there would be many parts of the world that would remain habitable, for example. Or if the Atlantic Ocean currents for the Gulf Stream stopped, that would be bad, but it, it doesn't actually change the average heat in the world. It just changes where that heat is. And so it's not the type of thing that would cause the collapse of civilization. And so on for most of the things that are looked at. So my, my I, ultimately, that in that section... My feeling is it, it it may well be worse. Climate change may well be worse and uh, uh, than you think. Uh, but even then, it is actually very difficult for it to be the final chapter in the human story. However, it does increase the chances that other existential risks will occur, doesn't it? Yeah, good. So this is important, and this is a distinction um, that I try to make. That uh, I think climate change may well be in itself an existential risk. Because like with nuclear winter, even if we can't yet put our finger on exactly what it is about this kind of massive, unprecedentedly rapid change to the Earth's climate that could do us in, we also can't rule it out. Um, so we have to think that there's at least you know, some slim chance that that could happen, even if we don't know how. But on top of that, uh, it is uh, you know, another thing that, that causes additional stresses upon humanity. It makes it harder for us to reach the kinds of agreements with other countries and to have the kind of energy left over to be taking seriously other kinds of threats. So if I imagine how much existential risk would there be in a world where climate change was no longer an issue? Suppose we you know, imagined we just developed some new technology, which meant that uh, we didn't have to worry about fossil fuel emissions. Well, I think that the risk would, would actually be noticeably smaller 
in a world like that. Um, and so we say that climate change, as well as being an existential risk, is, is also a risk factor. It's something that, that increases other risks. Um, and then there are other things like uh, war between great powers is one that I highlight, uh, where I think that even if working on, say, peace um, or you know, against war isn't exactly working on ec- an existential risk in particular, I think it is the kind of thing that could have a substantial effect on the amount of existential risk we have. So it could be you know, just as important or even more important than many risks that one could work on. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. And we're recording this in in mid-February 2021. And both you and I are locked down. And uh, COVID is still very much the biggest news story. How much of an existential risk are pandemics? I'm very worried about uh, pandemics um, as an existential risk. And this is a case where we can't draw as much comfort uh, that, uh, you know, that we can't see how it could happen uh, as we can for these other cases. We can think of natural pandemics. So even a naturally arising pandemic is ultimately partly to do with human behavior, um, you know, how we interact with wild animal species and the fact that, uh, that we're much more connected than we were in the past um, with air travel and other things, meaning that it can spread more quickly. Um, so it's still human mediated in some manner. But a naturally arising pandemic, I think, doesn't have much chance of being the end of humanity partly because we can draw some comfort from the fact that, like with other uh, naturally arising risks, such as asteroids or uh, volcanic eruptions, supervolcanoes, like with those, there is this fact that, that we've survived already for 2,000 centuries. Um, so that the risk per century, it's difficult for it to be above something like one in 2,000, or you have troubles explaining why we've survived so long, or why other species typically survive for a million years if there really were all these risks uh, that they have their own pandemics. So uh, that said, I do think even natural pandemics are of of a concern when it comes to existential risk. Um, We've seen other pandemics, such as uh, the uh, 100 years ago, the 1918 flu, killed about one in 30 people in the world. In in contrast, it looks like the coronavirus um, will kill about one in a thousand people in the world. Still an insane number. I mean, I have trouble dealing with the fact that that there's that much death in the world at the moment. But that the Spanish flu 100 years earlier was about 30 times that death toll. And then the the Black Death in uh, 1340s, that killed about one in three people in Europe, uh, which is about a tenth of the world's entire population. So a hundred times more than COVID. Uh, so we have seen extremely bad pandemics, and uh, while they they would have trouble 
destroying humanity entirely. Uh, it does seem like it would be possible. But it's more concerning uh, when you consider improvements to biotechnology and how they might be used by bad actors, either terrorist groups or in biowarfare, uh, when people deliberately design pathogens in order to have even more infectivity or even more lethality, or to combine um, extreme infectivity and lethality and asymptomatic spread and things like that. Uh, so that really is one that, that keeps me up at night. And the, the biggest protection <laughs> that we have from it in the international sphere is something called the Biological Weapons Convention, or BWC. And that is supposed to be you know, the, the twin of the uh, conventions against nuclear weapons and against chemical weapons. Uh, but it's much less funded than those. In fact, it just has a handful of permanent employees uh, and it has a budget uh, which is uh, about the size of a typical McDonald's. And that's the institution that's supposed to be protecting us. Um, and it doesn't have the capacity to do inspections. In fact, it's not allowed to do inspections and things like that. And we know that there have been serious breaches of the BWC in the past. We know that the Soviets breached it, for example. In fact, we have a long list of, of known breaches. So those areas of uh, either bioterrorism or, or biowarfare, um, so engineered pandemics, uh, yeah, one of the things that scare me most. And the pandemics aren't the only technological threat either. We've also got artificial intelligence. And when we think about AI as an existential threat, most of us will have in our minds a Hollywood fantasy of a robot uprising. But uh, that's not your perspective at all. Can you tell us what the real threat from artificial intelligence is? Yeah. For one thing, uh, note that uh, artificial intelligence wouldn't need robots in order to um, in order to potentially take over. Uh, this is something where uh, you might think, well, how you know what's it going to do if it doesn't have robotic manipulators or something? But ultimately, the the scariest people in the world, the times when humans have been closest to uh, to taking over such as uh, if you look at uh, Hitler or Stalin in the 20th century, uh, they were charismatic individuals that ultimately rose from, from being just one person in their country to having dictatorial control over a fair fraction of the world's military power. And they scaled that up uh, by getting other people uh, to do their dirty work, ultimately. Uh, and it would be possible for AI systems if they were uh, exceeding human capacities and human intelligence uh, to be able to do things like that. In the Hollywood, it often kind of suggests that it's some emotionally driven thing, but it wouldn't be emotional, or at least it, it's, it's unclear. You know, I think that's a red herring. Uh, ultimately, though, if you design an AI system that is generally intelligent, so it has this, this kind of universal intelligence that humans have, where they're not just kind of like narrowly fixated on one task, like playing chess, but almost all the chess programs can't play noughts and crosses, for example. You know, they, they would just ultimately lose a game of noughts and crosses against a, against a child, um, even though they might be grandmasters at chess. They're just very narrow. Uh, but there is this grand project in AI to develop general intelligence, and that's really come along a lot uh, with deep learning recently. And you get things like, uh, like DeepMind's projects where they've got a single system that can play over 50 different Atari games um, and a single system that, uh, that learned to play Go and chess and Shogi. Um, so they're really interested in general intelligence, as are others. Uh, and this is, in some sense, the holy grail of artificial intelligence. It was the original dream of the, of the pioneers. But uh, if you de developed such a system and gave it some goal in the world, and it reached the point where it was more intelligent than a human, so it was better at succeeding in whatever goal it had uh, than, than humans are, 
at least through the kind of intellectual means. Then a lot of these goals um, also have these instrumental goals that are created. Uh, so the example that Nick Bostrom likes to use is that uh, if, if it just had some goal, like say it was working for a factory and was trying to just produce paperclips, uh, and it was told, you know, your reward is equal to the number of paperclips that you create, uh, then ultimately, you know, it would ultimately want to create too many paperclips. Uh, and in that case, uh, it would realize uh, as a even half sensible human would realize that people would try to stop it. And so then it would have an instrumental goal to not get turned off and to not let the humans know that this was its plan. And so these types of instrumental goals come not from emotion, but just if you kind of take cold reason and apply it to this, this whatever task you've got, uh, if that task is ultimately not compatible with human flourishing, then humans would try to stop you, uh, which then creates this reason to be deceptive and to actually end up in conflict with, with humanity. Uh, and I think that if we, if we zoom out even more, I think that it makes it easier to, to see the big picture of this, the AI uh, challenges, which is that when uh, the experts on AI uh, have been surveyed on when do they think we will actually reach such a point where we have general intelligence that exceeds human level on almost all tasks, that their answers, well, the, the typical answer is later in this century. And I don't know if that that will happen or not, but their guess is as good as any. Um, and so if we assume there's something like a 50% chance that it will be reached in the next 100 years, and then we ask ourselves, will humanity remain in control of its future at that point? Or will we be at the whim of whatever systems that we create? Well, uh, if we look back and ask, why is humanity in control of its destiny now? Why is it that we have this uh, potential for an extremely long, flourishing future where other species don't? If you take a species like chimpanzees, you know, what's the difference? Why is it that ultimately they're at our mercy? And whether they flourish or not, uh, ultimately, uh, for better or worse, depends upon what, what humans want, not what they want. Well, it's ultimately because of our intelligence and our other cognitive abilities, such as language and you know, ability to communicate and work together in teams. Uh, but if we make systems that are better than us at the thing that was our unique special skill, why wouldn't it be they who are ultimately in control of the future um, where whether we flourish or not uh, comes down to uh, whether it's in their own interests to let us do so? And so I think that that probably we will uh, work out how to deal with that. Um, we'll work out ways of either controlling such systems or of setting their values so that they align closely enough with our values uh, that in building their own perfect future, they build ours too. But unfortunately, the sub-branch of AI that try to do this, uh, they're the ones who are leading uh, the concern about how hard this is, um, that this problem actually seems even harder than creating the AI in the first place, uh, this working out how to control it. So I ultimately think that, uh, that there's something like, uh, let's say, a one in two chance that we develop um, these kinds of AI systems over the next century. And then a one in five chance that uh, that, that is our downfall uh, if that happens for a total of about a one in 10 chance that uh, in some way to do with developments in AI, that this is our last century. So where do we go from here? We know we've got these existential risks on the horizon for this century and the century after. What can we do to safeguard humankind? 
I think there's there's a lot we can do. Um, so some of it is uh, is quite specific to each of these things. Um, so young people who are interested in machine learning, for example, can either you know research these AI safety techniques and AI alignment, um, try to work out you know how to solve this even harder and uh, also fascinating problem, but even more important of uh, how do we make sure that if we develop these systems that they're aligned with our interests. But that's not something everyone can do. Um, so, so in part, there's things with people with special skills or special interests can go into careers where they're actually helping on some of these biggest risks. Uh, people can also work on these risk factors, like as I mentioned, um, trying to avoid war between great powers, uh, such as the possibility of war between uh, the United States and China. So that's that. There's some areas for specialists. I think that uh, another example there is that the people in government often have very little uh, science background. Um, there's a tendency to get humanities students you know, into Whitehall. Um, that's, that's the stereotype, and sadly, it's still quite true. And uh, we need more people with a science background to go into policy. And we also need more people who are in science uh, to spend their time liaising with those and actually to helping to educate those people who are already in policy. And instead of bemoaning them making silly decisions about how to regulate uh, science, they should help them make better decisions about it. But then there's also things that uh, that everyone can do. Um, and I think one of those is to start thinking seriously from this perspective of humanity, uh, to really think about this huge future and how it's at stake at the moment and how this might be one of the most important times uh, that there has ever been and perhaps even that there ever will be uh, because it's this kind of crux uh, where uh, where the entire future is at stake. And to start a wider public conversation about this. We've had existential risks, particular risks, such as nuclear war and climate change, which really have rallied people together, uh, partly because of the existential risk aspect as well, not just other aspects of, the, of those concerns. So it is something that we can build a large amount of social concern around. But one thing that worries me is that in both those cases, it took about uh, 40 years from the kind of uh, developments of the of the problem through to the point where there were very large social movements out on the streets uh, campaigning about them. And we just may not have that long with something like biotechnology between the point where there's a kind of clear and present danger to the point where there's enough public understanding and action on it. And we need to realize that we don't need to kind of create a separate movement around every technology and spend decades in doing so. What we care about is what these things have in common, uh, which is their threat to our entire future. And that perhaps we need to uh, build a movement around that and try to raise that to these highest levels of concern and try to get action, uh, for example, by new international agencies or institutions uh, to help manage these existential risks. What do you make of uh, space colonization as a plan to hedge against the collapse of, of life? And is Elon Musk's plan to take us to Mars uh, wise or is it is it nonsense? <laughs> uh, Maybe none of the above. It's certainly fascinating, and I admit that I'm I'm the kind of person where you know when I was young I was I was, I was very excited about these types of things. Uh, I guess I'm still excited about that, but it's now, uh, you know, I I don't think ultimately that it is a very large help with the general problem of existential risk. I think that it is somewhat helpful because some of the risks would be independent between a you know, the old civilization on Earth and this new bastion of civilizations, say, on Mars. 
But many of the risks wouldn't be independent. It's entirely possible that a pandemic on one would actually spread to the other, um, or that uh, if one of them developed artificial intelligence uh, that was smarter than humans and didn't have humans' interests at heart, then it would probably end up destroying the other as well. So effectively, this idea that we've got all our eggs in one basket, and once we could finally spread into space, that would no longer be true and would be safe. Ultimately, that only applies to risks uh, that aren't correlated between the different places, whereas some risks, you know, if they happen one place, they're ultimately going to happen everywhere. So you ultimately could only get rid of, you know, something like half of the risk. And that's still good uh, if you could really do it, but it's certainly not uh, the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution, I think, in fact, a kind of easier solution is to just start taking the problem seriously in the first place to, to say, actually, yes, this is one of the most important priorities of our century. And at the moment, while it's very difficult to give a precise number about how much we spend on combating existential risk, uh, we can very safely say that it's less than we spend on ice cream. So we're, we're the kind of species, yeah, we're the kind of species that spends as much on building a typical McDonald's restaurant, you know, in a, in a small town as we do on International Bioweapons Convention, uh, and that we spend uh, more on ice cream than the entire amount that we spend on uh, preserving humanity's future. So I think that changing that, you know, becoming the type of type of species that just takes this seriously enough to say that that's outrageous, um, and we need to even even be attempting this. I think that that to get there, we need this public conversation. We need people to be thinking and talking about these things, and for them to become a kind of accepted view that you know a, a good analog actually is environmentalism. Back in say the 1950s, it was kind of shocking the level of disregard you know for, from our perspective now that people had for the environment. Um, almost no regard. If you read old children's books from that time period, they're almost like parodies. Uh, some of them that just show, you know, show these people just bulldozing things down and building all of these, uh, you know, these concrete over the top of them and so on. And, and you know, unironically uh, championing this okay. as progress. But that's something that very quickly rose to prominence. Um, you know, humanity, environmentalism hadn't been such a big issue before we became powerful enough that we were doing so much damage to the environment. Then it was a big issue. And very quickly, it was accepted as one by people. And that even if... Uh, uh, there are many people who think environmentalism is overrated. It's still the case that uh, that you know all major Western countries uh, have a ministry for the environment, and that this is treated as an important consideration. Even if it could be even more important, you know, it could be treated even more importantly. It's still something that is just a standard part of our normal moral discourse. Whereas it was it was quite absent uh, for many many centuries, uh, at least in many cultures. Um, so that's that's the that I think that shows the kind of way that that things could change um, and that we really could start taking this seriously, even if we haven't so far. You are ultimately an optimist in spite of everything that we've said. And you believe that if we survive the 21st and 22nd centuries, uh, humanity stands a chance of fulfilling its potential. What does that mean? Yeah, good question. So I don't ultimately know. Uh, and I, in the book, I try not, even though I'm talking about the future a lot, I try not to be a Nostradamus, right? To, to be making specific predictions about what's going to happen. And instead, what I try to do is to sketch the size or the shape of our potential. And the way I think about that is, is kind of not the painting that we'll paint, but what is the canvas available to us or, and what, you know, what is the palette of, of colors uh, that, that we can find? And 
I, I look, um, yeah, towards the end of the book, uh, I, I get into some, some some detail about how long we could survive. Um, and I show that, you know, a typical species, if we can survive as long as a typical species, it'd be another million years, which is just a truly vast number of generations where our own generation is just this, this one small moment among all of this. But there's nothing ultimately stopping us lasting until the end of the earth in about a billion years and potentially delaying that through geoengineering. The geoengineering would actually not be that different to the geoengineering we're talking about doing this century. And so if we can survive for 1 billion years, I'm pretty sure we'd be able to do it um, if we wanted to at that point, especially when the other outcome is that the earth is destroyed uh, and it's our only hope. Um, and we could probably preserve the entire biosphere for billions of years more, up to about 7 billion years. And then I think that we could live far beyond that as well, because there are, there are many other stars being born, which will, uh, even if our star dies, uh, that will last for much longer. Uh, and it will ultimately be trillions of years uh, while there are still stars burning in the Milky Way. And then also our, you know, our scope, like the kind of physical scale of civilization could extend far beyond uh, the earth, making the earth seem as parochial as, you know, as imagining how long my small town I'd grew up in, you know, is going to last or something like that, um, where, you know, that might really seem the wrong question, you know, from this kind of global perspective. Similarly, you know, the Milky Way has hundreds of millions of planets in it uh, that, uh, that we could settle and there are uh, billions of galaxies that we could reach as far as we, we best understand at the moment. Uh, so we think that the, the future could be very large and very long, and also that the quality of life of individuals in it could continue to, to grow. We know that you know, each human now lives about twice as long as they did 200 years ago, uh, and our lives you know, are longer, and they're also you know, better in many ways. Um, we have far less ill health. We have uh, the you know, literacy. It's now the norm instead of the exception. And uh, we're also vastly wealthier um, and far fewer of us live in poverty. 200 years ago, uh, 95% of people lived below what we would now consider the absolute poverty line. And, uh, uh, and now the vast majority of us are above it. Um, so there's so many ways things have got better over time. And I think that that could continue. And there, there are a whole lot of reasons to think that, that the upper limits of, uh, of the quality of each of our lives over this vast future um, could just far exceed uh, what we have so far. Uh, but but that's all that's all at stake. So it's it's the fact that I'm so optimistic about this future, which makes me really want to strive to protect it and ensure that that we get to fulfil this potential. Well, I'm crossing my fingers. Although from what you've said, that's probably not going to be enough. <laughs> thank you so much, Toby, for joining us on the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's been great. This week's show starred Toby Ord. It was produced and presented by me. Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. Toby's book, The Precipice, comes out in paperback on the 18th. I loved it, and you will too. If this week's show whetted your appetite for existential risk and the science fictional world we already live in, I strongly recommend checking out last year's episodes with the novelist William Gibson and the philosopher Roman Krasnarik, both available wherever you found this podcast. I'll be back next week. Until then, stay safe and thanks for listening.
Hmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.